This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 281. Today's episode is all about mind-enhancing lessons from the longest scientific study on happiness ever conducted. The link to wisdom is important because older people figure this out, that as we get older, it turns out that we get happier, at least from middle age into old age. And one of the reasons why we think older people are happier is because they lean into the connections they have. They're they're very important to them because probably because they're threatened, right? There's a recognition that people won't be around forever, that I may not be around forever. And that limited sort of life horizon makes people value connections to others even more. So they lean into their existing relationships. They try hard to cultivate them. And that's a real important kind of factor of resilience for people as they age. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. We all just want to be happy, right? We might think we want more money, or we want to find love, or we want to have kids, but why? It's because we think it will make us happier. In all of my years in the self-development space, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard, happiness comes from within, or that money or even love doesn't bring happiness. And there's a lot of truth to that. But what does contribute to happiness then? Do external circumstances even matter? Or is it always something that we cultivate from within? Can external circumstances help us to cultivate it from within? Well, the truth is, yeah, they can. The first thing that comes to mind is money. I remember reading a while back that money doesn't buy happiness, but a lack of money can make it a lot harder to find also. If you're struggling to survive, your brain is in fight or flight, which means that you're only accessing your reptilian brain and essentially shutting off the parts that feel love and empathy and purpose. For years, I remember trying to cultivate happiness when my whole world was falling apart. And the whole time I felt like I was faking it because I was. I was overspending, so I was always a little bit stressed. I had also convinced myself that the next thing that I purchased would fill the void and it never did. So I was in this weird dopamine cycle of death I was also bulimic, so my blood sugars weren't stable at all, and I wasn't giving my body proper fuel. And I was partying all the time, so I had drugs and alcohol in my system and never got enough sleep. Not to mention all of the fake friends bonded around our toxic habits. And somehow I wondered why, no matter how much yoga and happiness journaling that I did in between my ragers, 
never seemed to make much of a dent in my oscillating moods between pessimism and hopelessness. So yeah, we do kind of need to meet a baseline of external factors so that it's actually possible to change our internal states. But then what? Well, thankfully, there has been an ongoing study around this topic for the last 80 years. Harvard's study of adult development is widely recognized as the world's longest study on happiness and has provided a ton of information about what factors contribute to a fulfilling and happy life. This study began in the 1930s and has followed the lives of 724 men, initially from their teenage years through to the present day, and it's collected extensive data on the physical, social, and psychological factors that influence their well-being and happiness. And yes, if it stands out to you that it's 724 men, let's just blame the fact that it started over 80 years ago when they refused to do any sort of studies on women. But I do think that there's a ton to gain from this. So today we're talking about what was learned in Harvard's longest study on happiness and how to actually apply it to our lives. Our guest is Mark Schultz. He is the associate director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and he also directs the Data Science Program. He previously chaired the psychology department and clinical development psychology PhD program at Bryn Mawr, and he's a practicing therapist with postdoctoral training in health and clinical psychology at Harvard Medical School. So he kind of knows what he's talking about. And he's also the co-author of the book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. So three key things we will learn are how we can master challenges through mindfulness, why it's important to be radically curious about the world, and the top findings for defining and creating happiness for yourself. I have always been someone who's prioritized wellness. Well, at least what I understood about it at the time, which has definitely evolved. But now I live in a town where some of my conveniences just aren't as accessible as when I lived in L.A., then I found Aloe Moves and my whole experience changed. I've been an avid yogi for 16 years, but frankly, I am just underwhelmed by most online yoga. Their flows are either too easy or not varied enough. Well, Aloe Moves has everything. Of course, they have an endless selection of beginner content since that is the category most people fall into, but they even have advanced and yoga teacher focused content. They are the only online platform that I can find that I can narrow down the time that I'm looking for precisely. Like, I have 38 minutes today. What you got? <laughs> they have something for every mood. Trying to get a good sweat? Try their award-winning workouts like sweat-inducing yoga flows, hit classes, or reformer Pilates workouts with or without weights. Or find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and even journaling for those quiet moments. And when it comes to sleep, it's just as important as fitness and nutrition. Ever since I watched The Art of Sleep on Aloe Moves, I've been falling asleep faster and staying asleep longer. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to alomoves.com now and use code MINDLOVE for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's alomoves.com code MINDLOVE. Alomoves.com code MINDLOVE. And now let's welcome Mark Schultz to the show. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So how did you come to participate in the longest study on happiness ever conducted? What intrigued your interest about that? Well, I, I consider myself so lucky to be part of this study. But of course, there was a path before that. I've been a clinician for a long time. 
I've taught at Bryn Mawr College for going on 25 years now. And more recently, it's been a privilege to be connected to the study, which, as you say, is one of the longest studies of its kind. It started in the late 30s and has been tracking folks from over 720 families um, throughout their entire lives. And we're actually now studying the children of the original participants. So it's a really remarkable study. It's given us just amazing insight into what helps people thrive and how people overcome challenges. How I got interested in this is I, I've always been someone that's uh, from from the time I was a kid, I was the kind of kid who liked to hang back a little bit and observe others um, instead of diving into activities right away. And I figured out at some point that psychology was a way that you could kind of do that for a living. And I've really enjoyed the opportunities that I've had to learn about people's lives. It's enriched my own life, um, but it's also taught me a lot of important lessons. So when I had the chance to work on this study, uh, along with my colleague, Bob Waldinger, I was just tremendously excited. It's an extraordinary study, and it has uh, just a treasure trove of information about people's lives. Well, your latest book is called The Good Life. So knowing what you know, how do you define the good life? Yeah, important question. So in this book, when we're talking about the good life, we're talking about a life that has meaning and purpose and also has joy for people. So when the psychologists talk about the good life or, or happiness, they're often thinking about two dimensions. They're talking, you know, thinking about sort of moment by moment joy and happiness, that kind of experience of, of pleasure and joy that we all know when we have it. And they're also talking about having a kind of broader sense that life is meaningful and purposeful and satisfying in some ways. So what we were interested in this book was exploring what we knew about what makes for a satisfying and happy life. So the idea that healthy relationships might be a key to happiness isn't a new idea. Mm -mm. So what are some of the parallels of this study with some of the ancient wisdom that my audience might know because we do cover those things on this show? Yeah, of course. So that's absolutely right. And and this is a place where the kind of confluence of ideas, ancient ideas and modern ideas to me is reassuring that there are lots of ancient traditions that talk about the centrality of relationships for purpose and meaning and joy in life. And this is a place where the science happens to coincide with those ancient truths. Uh, so you can see them in religious traditions. You can see it in, in ancient philosophy. The Greeks certainly talked a lot about the importance of connection to others and a place in community. And you can see it in, in cultural traditions that are non-Western as well. So Eastern traditions, uh, Buddhist traditions, really important ideas across many cultural traditions that just emphasize the importance of connecting to others, feeling a sense of connection to something broader than oneself. And these are ideas that I think have been borne out in modern research, which is refreshing. So it's it's one thing to kind of know it intuitively. It's one thing to hear it in church or to hear it from a kind of wise elder. But for me as a scientist, really reassuring that we're finding things that are resonating with these ancient truths as well. I find it interesting that it seems like so many ancient cultures knew these things intuitively, but they did not have the science that we have. And it seems like we live almost the opposite of what this research <laughs> brings about. Yeah. And we have to be convinced by all of the these like really technical studies and and we have to watch people for 80 years and be like, okay, maybe you have a point. Where do you think that disconnect is? Why do you think they got it right and <laughs> we don't? 
Well, I want to say two things. I want to say first that there's a lot of received ancient, ancient wisdom that did get it right. And there's some that got it wrong too, right? So we tend to revere ancient wisdom, but we forget that there are some things that folks were mistaken about. And that's true of science as well, that, you know, only a hundred years ago, we were using bloodletting as, as our main way to cure people of illness so that we learn things as we develop as a culture. But I think you're asking a really important question that there are lots of ways that we get distracted from things that we know that intuitively we think are true. And it's our culture that there are lots of messages that we get that there are things that are more important than our relationships. So success, achievement, money, status, social media certainly plays a role in that today. And we're still in the middle or trying to reckon with this pandemic over the last two and a half years, which has just extraordinarily, you know, disrupted people's lives. So I think we do live in an interesting time where it's hard in some ways to pursue those connections that are important to us. Sometimes they're barriers like the pandemic, and sometimes I think they're cultural barriers that they're, they're just messages telling us that relationships are less important than other things. That's a topic that irks me because... We already knew the science of social isolation and the negative effects that could have. We already knew the science of a lot of the things that they forced us to do that's now coming out and saying, oh, we did the wrong thing with everything. But plenty of people knew, plenty mm -hmm. of people knew, yet they pushed it anyways. <laughs> Why is it that those in charge should have this information but seem to do the opposite. I know you probably don't know that definitively, but I'm curious so, well, of your ideas. I think we have some ideas about this. And it's not just the folks in charge, it's all of us. It includes myself that I sometimes don't prioritize relationships in the way that I should for my own health and well-being. So I think there, there are two main things that I can point to besides these sort of cultural influences. The first is that relationships are messy. So one of the reasons why we, we kind of pull back from relationships and we end up finding ourselves isolated is that relationships inevitably involve some conflict. They're going to involve some tensions. And for many of us, that's scary. And it's natural to kind of pull back and worry about the impact that might have on our lives. So there's a kind of messiness to relationships that's also very human and refreshing, but it's scary to a lot of people. And I think there's some really interesting research that looks into how good we are as human beings at predicting what's good for us. And it turns out in the emotional world, we're not very good at predicting the kinds of things that'll lift us up. So there's a very famous study that was conducted by some researchers at the University of Chicago. And what they did, really clever idea, is they went into a kind of subway station on the morning commute or the L in, in Chicago, and they asked people, they randomly asked some people to talk to strangers on the train, and they told other people to do as they usually would do. And they asked them to predict before they did that, they asked them to predict what would make them happier. And most people said, not talking to strangers, doing my usual routine, which is listening to music or reading a book or the paper or napping, that's what's going to make me the happiest. And it turned out that the people who are randomly assigned to talk to strangers had the most uplifting experience. They reported being the happiest after that. So that's just one example where we think we're not going to be happy in certain situations. And research suggests to us that connecting with others is what makes us happy. So I, I think it's probably those two things combined that somehow discourage us from recognizing the importance of connections to others. Yeah, I'll admit it. I had this revelation recently. I think I'm in that point of my life. You mentioned in your book how midlife we start to question and I, I'm 37 and I've always really valued my privacy. I'm a highly sensitive person, so I'm really affected by the people around me as it is and I didn't really know how to 
create and enforce boundaries and things like that. So it was easier for me to just be like, okay, yeah, I'll come to your house instead of you coming to me. That way I could leave when I wanted to and and things like that. But recently I started having people over for dinner more. And every time right before I'm having them over, like the morning of when I'm prepping, I'm like, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. This is just adding more stress. And every time they leave, I'm like, that is the best thing I've done all week. Why do I even question this? And so you're right. I know this information and I remind myself and still every time I'm like, why am I doing this? No, remember how you felt last time. It's like not this lasting feeling inside. I have to remind myself and redo it almost every time. And I think what you said is is a common experience. I certainly can relate to it that I, I think we all forget how much we can enjoy the company of others and how much it can stay with us for periods after that experience, et cetera, keeps us buoyed in life. So we tend to, to kind of minimize how important that is. Some people more than others. So of course we come in different flavors. Some people like the big crowds and being together with lots of people. But your example of dinner parties is a lovely one that for many people it's, you know, it's a it's a peak experience during the week. And yet we get into that moment where we start to worry about how it's going to go and it's so much work and I could have used this time for other things. So we, we wrestle with those decisions when in the end it's clear that we benefit from those uh, connections that we make. I don't know about you, but I have some serious concerns when it comes to my tap water quality. And by concerns, I mean it's absolutely rancid, and I don't even drink it at restaurants. (laughs) Research shows that water coming through the pipes into most homes contains a ton of contaminants. We're talking chlorine, fluoride, heavy metals, and even emerging chemicals like PFAS. I mean, have you seen the inside of your plumbing pipes? Let's be real. There's no way long-term exposure to this isn't damaging, especially if pregnant or with little ones. Now, I'm not saying we need to panic, but proactively filtering out the bad stuff seems obvious to me. And those cheap filters won't cut it either. What I personally use and recommend is a reverse osmosis system like AquaTrue. Their four-stage filtration removes over 80 potential toxins, way more protection than water filters or faucet add-ons provide. And the best part is AquaTrue's countertop model requires zero installation. It hooks right up to your sink. And unlike brand name competitors, their filters only need replacing every six months to two years, thanks to a patented membrane technology. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and even makes a great gift. Today, my listeners receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter code MIND at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use promo code M-I-N-D. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. 
Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. It was funny too because my husband was on a flight the other day and he was texting me from the flight and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm sitting next to the worst person. <laughs> he immediately got here, put all of his stuff in the middle seat, took off his shoes and socks and put his feet up and he was like a big man. <laughs> and then he was like trying to talk and he's like, don't talk to me. And it just happened to be on a day that I came across some travel article about like travel etiquette and I sent it to him and it said like, don't talk to the person next to you. Nobody wants that. And then I read your study and I know that the times that I end up being a little bit joyful, maybe back when I used to drink and I'd have my first glass of wine on that plane or something, mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll just chit chat. I do leave feeling good. But then there's this line where, I mean, I feel like that article got like thousands of shares and people are like, yes, do not talk to me on a plane. And so where's the line of being like, you know, I'm going to talk to you anyways, because this right. is good for you. You're going to thank me later. <laughs> So I think that line probably varies depending on who you are. There's some people that can't, you know, just be quiet and stay by themselves. They need that connection continuously. And then there are other folks that thrive if they have enough alone time that sort of helps them organize themselves and helps them relax, kind of de-stress. And then their engagement is sort of more positive because of that. So that that line is probably going to vary by person. And, you know, of course, we talk about introversion, extroversion, or shyness, and that's a, an important component of it. But I think almost across the spectrum, no matter how introverted you are or not, people are often surprised by what comes out of these serendipitous conversations that you have, whether it's someone that you're traveling with or uh, someone that you meet every day that you don't necessarily engage with. And then one day you just have an opportunity to, the bus gets sort of stuck somewhere and you're forced to talk to someone and you think, why, my goodness, I could have talked to this person for three months before this. And it's really interesting. So, you know, we, we have these momentary kind of surges of, of joy or connection when we, we talk to people in those contexts. But there are also opportunities for learning, right? You know, I, I'm a person that really enjoys learning about other people's experiences. I think I grow from that. And these are opportunities to know something about what they're experiencing. And it, hopefully it's something that's different than your own experience and allows us to grow in that way as well. So the occasions to take advantage of that really important. I love them. And that's part of what COVID has kind of starved us of. Social isolation is really hard for human beings, really hard. Yeah, I found that... I didn't used to enjoy talking to strangers very much, but I realized it was my mindset. <laughs> like it was, it was around this idea where I remember reading that uh, something else around the idea of talking to strangers and how it was good for you, but I would almost be doing it reluctantly. Like, hi, let's small talk, you know, versus actually getting into that mind of curiosity. And yeah. so I love what you said about thinking like, what can I learn from this? Not, not just how can I talk to this person? How can I engage this person? Cause then it's more pressure on me. And it feels like I'm just like shooting out these points that I, I don't care about and neither does the person. And, and I think that is palpable versus right. like, no, I want to learn about you. Like, what do you do? You, 
everybody is interesting if you get them in the right field of of topic, you know? And so if you can remember that instead of just writing people off, like, oh, it's another boring guy on a plane, then I think it allows the conversation to unravel in a completely different way. I, I think that's right. And, you know, the way I would talk about it is that we often get stuck, all of us get stuck in this idea that it's always about us. It's about what's going on in our head, that we're not asking the right questions, or maybe we're the ones with the smelly socks on the plane, that there's something wrong with us as opposed to kind of opportunity to learn something and connect with others. It's really remarkable what happens when you stop worrying about that as much. Yeah. So you asked me a little bit about, you know, my journey and how I got into this. And I'm a kind of, I love observing other people. It's, it's sort of what I do in much of my professional life. And I feel very lucky because it's taught me lots of lessons. Um, I've learned about experiences that I would never have and I'm unlikely to have in my life. People who live a very different kind of life, have different activities that organize their life. Um, those are things that I'll allow us to grow and also connect with, this is important, I think, connect with our basic sense of humanity, that there are traits that we share with people that don't look like us, don't do things like us, that that's what we learn when we talk to folks that are maybe strangers yeah, that we meet in, in kind of unusual places. It's funny too, because we can hear this a hundred times, but from most people, what really drives this this quest for happiness a lot of times is associated with money. We all know that money can't buy happiness, but do we actually believe that deep inside? We think I if I just made a little bit more then I'd be less stressed or I'd have this or I could give my kids this or if I had this I'd be okay and and that's true to a certain point. I remember reading at some point that it's like over I mean, this was years and years ago and due to inflation, it's probably a lot more, but it was like over 67,000 or something like that was the amount that, okay, that kind of solved your survival needs. But then above that, it didn't make a difference. What else do you know about that? And, and why does the idea that money buys happiness retain such allure? That study that you're talking about is quite famous about putting a number on it where things change. And it, you know, there's probably not a real number. That number at the time was about the average family income in the United States. But I think there are some benefits to money, right, that we want to acknowledge. So money gives us a little more control. It gives us safety in a country like the United States. It gives us access to health care and other privileges that are nice things to have. But the idea that money is the most important driver, that somehow that's the key to success, that's, I think, what gets us into trouble. And the data is pretty clear that after a certain amount, as you're suggesting, money doesn't seem to correlate that strongly with happiness. So it's other factors that are important. So why is it that we keep thinking that money may be the, the kind of driver or the key here? I think part of it is that money, like things on a resume, are kind of easy to count. Um, and we're, we're people that like to count things. So when I was younger and I was working in jobs maybe that I didn't like as much, at the end of that hour or eight hour day, I'd say to myself, well, at least I earned X amount of money, that I could count up the amount of money that I earned. So that we often think about the value of things by, by the ways that we're able to count them. And happiness and relationships are just much harder to count. We can count Facebook friends or the number of you know folks that follow us on LinkedIn or whatever social media we use. 
But that's different than the kinds of connections that we're talking about in our book, The Good Life. We're talking about connections that have a kind of authentic and, and reciprocal quality that often happen in real time as well. So those kinds of things are much more ephemeral. They're much, they're just much harder to touch and to count. I think it's just hard to quantify that. Maybe we're as humans, we, we tend to quantify that's partly how we measure our worth often. Yeah, I'm trying to develop a system where I I count in different ways and, and not scientifically or anything like that. But I realized with goals and with my business, if I stop writing down my tasks and and actually tracking my wins, it, it feels like I'm not moving anywhere. And with relationships, I don't want to be in this cycle where I'm stressed out most of the time thinking about meeting up with somebody and then I get there and there's like an hour or two of joy and then I leave and I, I really try to drill it in. Okay, remember this so that it does stay there. But it seems like if I just let it go naturally, there's more of the time that I'm convincing myself not to than there is of me really reflecting on how great it was. And yeah. so now I'm starting to actually write it on my calendar, write it in my to-dos, like have it as a field of uh, of my values and my a category of goals. So yes, here's what I did with business, but here's what I did with personal. And then here's what I did with relationships. Yeah. And I used to kind of group all the personal together. It's like, well, I worked out today. I don't need to meet up with a friend. But now I want to make sure that I'm giving just as much attention to those relationships because you know what my abs look like feels stupid saying abs while I'm pregnant. <laughs> but <laughs> what that looks like, it's not going to have the same effect as like these long lasting relationships, somebody being there for you when you need it. It. And I'm so glad that I've been doing that because I just moved to this town a couple of years ago. And so I've had to kind of go back and really consciously create relationships and friendships. And last week, our power went out for a full like three days. And it was so nice being in this town with the relationships that I've yep. created because we needed help. I'm pregnant yep. with a toddler. It was 40 degrees in our house during a snowstorm. And we had so many people reach out asking what we needed, inviting us to come over. And it was in that moment that I like actually teared up. I'm like, this is what life is about. Like, this yeah. is what we should be creating. Yeah. Everything else is just sort of a means toward that. Yeah. I mean, so many important things you said there. And, and you talked about being in your 40s and maybe middle-aged, although it's early, I think, yeah, yeah, to say middle-aged. <laughs> but there's wisdom in what you're talking about, right? And and, and I want to highlight a few of the things that, that we do talk about in The Good Life. The first is that our kind of what we call social fitness, how, how connected we are and how effective we are in our connections with others. It, it doesn't happen naturally. It is like physical fitness. We need to work at it. We need to be intentional and we need to practice. It. And the risk there is if we don't practice it, that our relationships will wither and our ability to take kind of maximal advantage out of relationships to grow the most, to get the most joy to those things will be hampered because we're just kind of out of shape on relationships. So I love the idea that you make it part of your priorities, just like your business priorities and, and priorities about physical fitness. I think that's really, really important. The idea of reflecting on where you are is also important. Um, so, so thinking about that universe of social connections you have, what's important to you, critical to do, and social connections serve so many purposes. So one of our favorite questions in the study, we asked the participants um, in midlife, we asked them, if something happens to you in the middle of the night, do you have someone you can call to depend on? So when your lights went out, similar kind of crisis. And it turns out that that's an important idea that we have people that we can rely on when we're at our most neediest, our most vulnerable. Having people like that is 
connected with people thriving in life. They certainly are able to come at, overcome adversity, but just knowing that you have people that you connect with, maybe that was part of the reason for the tears, knowing that you're part of a community. It gives us a kind of special feeling, not unlike the feeling of being loved when we're children, being cared for and protected, that that's an important feeling for humans. And as adults, as we get older, I think there, there are reasons why we forget that sometimes. I want to say one other thing before I forget, which is that the, the link to wisdom is important because older people figure this out, that as we get older, it turns out that we get happier, at least from middle age into old age. And one of the reasons why we think older people are happier is because they lean into the connections they have. They're, they're very important to them because probably because they're threatened, right? They're, there's a recognition that people won't be around forever, that I may not be around forever. And that limited sort of life horizon makes people value connections to others even more. So they lean into their existing relationships. They try hard to cultivate them. Yeah. And that's a real important kind of factor of resilience for people as they age. So starting that at middle age, terrific. Really great. Yeah. I have a, a friend's giving dinner today. And it's so funny that I have to like consciously make myself do this, but I'm bringing the baked apples and the ice cream that I said I'd bring. But then I was like, you know, it would feel really good if I were in the position of hosting this, if somebody asked me what else I need. And so I, it's like I'm doing this very methodically and I'm hoping that it ends up becoming just natural. But it's not natural for me because I spent a really long time not prioritizing this. And I think one of the reasons for the tears the other day was I have a very specific core memory of being in my 20s. And it was during a time I was living in LA, going out every night, I probably had more social connections than I had ever had. And something came up and I had to go, I had to fly to Northern California. And I was looking for a ride to the airport because I don't know if Uber existed back then. And if it did, I probably was broke. <laughs> and I started asking people and I asked about 20 people and could not find one person who was willing to take me to the airport, which Mind you, it was only like 15 miles away. It is LA, and so it might take an hour. But still, I was making it clear that this was kind of an emergency, and I couldn't find that person. And I remember just feeling devastated. But it was a moment for me where I realized I had to make changes and that these relationships were superficial and that maybe bonding over booze and drugs is not the best bond <laughs> that you can have, <laughs> despite staying up all night talking about everything in your lives. <laughs> and so now just to sort of have these relationships that are built on a much more secure foundation with things that aren't physically and psychologically draining us is, it was just one of those moments where I was like, yes, that's where I was. And at that moment, I was deciding where I wanted to be. And now I'm there. And I still can grow like you can continue deepening friendships like that. And it's so important because one of the things you touch on in your book is that loneliness actually has physical effects on the body. Can you tell us about that? Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. And get this, the indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some cases up to 100 times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? Two words, living intentionally. We have to take full responsibility for every area of our lives, including our health, which also includes our air. And that's why I love my air doctor. 
As a reminder, when you support my sponsors, you also support the show. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants, so your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants like allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mite, spores, and even bacteria and viruses. I live in the mountains, and our air is pretty great. When I drive home, I can witness myself rising above the cloud of pollution that covers the rest of Southern California. But I know that even in the mountains, my home traps in the contaminants that my family brings inside. Plus, just sleeping one night with my air doctor, I could actually feel the difference. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day breathe-easy money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. So head to Air Doctor Pro and use promo code MIND, and depending on the model, you'll get up to $300 off. You're saving up to $300. Lock this special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code MIND. That's promo code M-I-N-D. loneliness actually has physical effects on the body. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, we kind of summarize the, the sort of take home message of the book that relationship keep, keep us happier and healthier. And one of the things I think you're alluding to is that, you know, relationships come in all sizes and shapes. And I hope we talk about the kind of range of relationships and what they can get us. So I don't want to lose one piece of what you said. So it sounds like when you're younger, you were in a kind of environment in which maybe some of the behaviors weren't the healthiest for you and some of the relationships weren't as deep as you might have wanted them to be. But I don't want to neglect the fun that we have with folks. That that to me, that's really important. Experiencing joy, experiencing pleasure with other people. That's an important part of our life. So there's some relationships that maybe aren't that deep, but they're really fun. Or there are people that we work out with that we don't really know a lot about, but we love to see at the gym or when we play tennis or whatever. So there's a kind of complement of relationships. Not all of them need to be as deep as you might need at certain points, but we also need those deep relationships. We need people we can depend on. So research on loneliness, really important topic and increasingly loneliness is being seen as a major public health challenge in the United States and across many cultures. In England, they have a kind of ministry level appointment because it's such a serious public health issue. And it's serious because research tells us that it's as important a risk factor for people's health and longevity as things like smoking and obesity, that it's on the same level in terms of the way it impacts our health. So how does it do that? The same way that relationships nourish us, the absence of those connections, a sense of disconnection, a sense of loneliness is kind of corrosive to our bodies. And that feeling that the, the relationships get into our head in a kind of subjective state of feeling disconnected or, or lonely. And that has an impact on our hormones, our neurotransmitters, our levels of inflammation in our body, the way we fight um, invaders in the body like COVID. So our ability to, to reject illness or to stand off, you know, uh, uh, any kind of micro, including COVID, but more than that. So there, there are many ways that relationships can get under our skin. And I think that's been the last 20 or 30 years of research. It's just remarkable the things that it can do. So in the book, we profile some research that uh, some named James Cohn did, who's at Virginia, in which he administered small kind of ways to, to make people feel hurt, to, to experience some pain, mild pain. And he tried it under different conditions. And one of the conditions, people are able to hold hands. And particularly when they're able to hold hands with loved ones, their experience of the pain was different and equally important. Their brain showed a very different pattern of response. So we, we kind of 
are beginning to see, and it's only the tip of the iceberg, the many ways in which relationships literally go from outside of ourselves to in our body and shape our responses to uh, experience in the moment and certainly protect us against stresses that we encounter. Relationships are so critical for that. So the absence of relationships, when we feel lonely and disconnected, we don't get to take advantage of those things. And it literally corrodes our body in ways where we're not as healthy, we face more physical illness, and the data suggests that we die earlier as well when we're lonely. It's so sad. It's, it like, it's like, get a friend and a cat and we'll all be okay. Well, but well, I want to say, because I, I really important to say this, so it is sad, but it's also so common. The reason it's a public health issue isn't only because there's a link with these bad health outcomes. It's because the percentages are astronomical. 30 to 40% of adults talk about feeling lonely, depending on the survey in which country we're talking about. Um, young people feel some of the highest levels of loneliness. And you can think about college students that are surrounded by thousands of people just like them, but they feel quite lonely. They feel some of the experiences that you were recalling, right, from your earlier youth as well. I have two things to say about that, because the first thing is that that college-ness, maybe the 20-ness, yes, I had a, a lot of connections, and, and yes, the fun was really important, and I wouldn't trade it. I think at that age, I did not know how to be a good friend. I didn't know how to put other people before myself and neither did other people. And so I think that's why loneliness is so prevalent mm -hmm. during that time frame, is because we're all kind of looking out for number one because we're independent for the first time. We don't, we haven't learned that deep core truth of how important the relationships are. So relationships feel, at least for me, they felt self-serving a little bit more. and. And yeah, if they were in front of me, I wa wanted to be a good friend, but it was easy to be like, well, I've got this other thing going on and this person wants me to help them move, which sounds more fun. You mm -hmm. know? And so, so I, I think there, that was a hard time for me because I was very aware of that. And also it was a necessary time because it was one of the things that really taught me that this is not what I want my relationships to be and I needed to approach them in another way. And then the other thing I wanted to say about it is that for me too, I talked about how I'm being more intentional about almost tracking my friendship and my quality time. And that has been so helpful because not a lot has changed as far as my behaviors. I guess I do see, okay, well, this is lacking. I need to prioritize this added in. Yes. But also just the tracking of it and just noting no, I, I did this this week and it helps me to remember it rather than it just sort of slipping by into another waste pile of memories <laughs> or, or so to speak. And so I have this natural streak in me that I, I talked about a lot. I think it's from being an only child, from moving a lot. Like I just have always felt a little bit lonely. Mm -hmm. And so if I don't call attention to, no, you're being social, like look at these friendships, remember these friendships that loneliness streak will pop back up even if I'm doing all of the same things. And it's just like with my goals when I might be making progress, but if I'm not seeing that, like making a point to put that in front of me, tracking my wins, checking off to do's, it can feel like I'm not moving forward at all. And so those two things kind of combined can change our perception of what's already happening versus feeling like, oh, I have no friends and I don't have these deep connections. Yeah. So again, lots of wisdom in there. And I'm going to, going to again, highlight two things that really struck me. One is 
we grow through our lifetime. And one of the real take home points of studying people across their entire life is that it's never too late, that, that people who were lonely into their 70s in the study figure out ways to uh, change their life, to lean into connections. We profile a, a man who is in a marriage that um, left him feeling really disconnected and, and depressed. And in his 60s, late 60s, I think he separated from his wife and decided kind of, this is almost serendipity, he decided for health reasons to join a gym. And he found a whole new community in the gym that he really liked. It, it was like he didn't have to make new friends exactly. He could go to the gym, he could be with other people, and he found out that they had similar interests. For him, it had to do with movies. Um, so there are these stories of, of change late in life that are quite remarkable for people that haven't figured it out earlier. There's still hope is what these folks teach us. But I think the lessons we learn are also important, that we don't come into adulthood fully formed, that we all have to experience things. And one of the things that's important for 20-year-olds is to have experiences, to learn about life, to learn what works and what doesn't work for you. That's how we grow. And we do get wiser as we get older because we have a number of experiences. We're able to take advantage of that. But we have to figure it out for ourselves what's important um, and then I guess the, the the last thing that's really important, and we we highlight a lot of this in our book, is this idea, again, about keeping track of your social universe, not sort of letting it just happen, being intentional. And we have some exercises in the book. Uh, one example is that we ask people to think about who they spend the most time with over the course of a few weeks. So who are they interacting most frequently with of those people and of the people they're not interacting with? Uh, are they having, are they, do they typically have uplifting connections when they interact with those people or are they depleting in some way? And once you kind of map out what is happening for you, where you're spending most of your time. So for the typical person, they're going to say, I spend a lot of time at work. Some colleagues I like, some colleagues I don't like. This person brings me down. This person I really enjoy spending time with. They might include their family in there too, but oftentimes the frequency of those connections may not be at the level that they want. So that allows us to kind of keep stock and think about the ways we want to improve. And as you're describing, we can also keep track of the, the improvements that we're making. We can kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, this is good. I'm doing better than I was six months ago or a year ago. I'm really beginning to prioritize things. We also haven't talked about the way life intervenes. So you mentioned, I think, that you were pregnant and life transitions are big in terms of the ways that they affect our social universe. So I remember when we had children, it was a kind of turning in in some ways. Our circle got much smaller during that period of time. Then when our kids were older, our, our circle started to enlarge again. And we kind of intentionally thought about this. We're spending less time with our children, less time going to their activities. My wife and I talked about what are the things we want to do together that can enrich our lives. So really important to be intentional about those things. It is true. Like now I'm a, a new mom, newish, still feels new, even though it's almost been two years, but I guess it started at the beginning of pregnancy that I started to feel like a mom. But I remember at some point in my twenties, joking with a friend, one of our friends got pregnant and we're like, well, I guess we're never seeing her again. <laughs> so I like this death sentence. And now I'm like, <laughs> you have kids want to be besties. And my core group up here that I gets me really excited is a bunch of moms, you know, and it doesn't, matter if we have all of these other interests that used to matter to me in in common because just the fact of having kids bonds you in such a special unique way like we all know we're in boot camp and <laughs> we're going through it and we just want to enjoy our apple pie at the end of the day <laughs> you know and so absolutely 
Absolutely. So, I mean, I would say having my youngest is 23, so it's been a while since I was a young dad, but the connections we made when our first child was born remain important people to us. Even the kids that were part of those groups. So, we, you know, we got to know folks that were also having kids at the same time. And this is a good kind of illustration of, again, the ways that relationships can enrich our lives. We learned things from them. We figured out things that we didn't know. We were new to the community when our son was born. So, you know, where do you get the baby clothes? Which is the best supermarket to go to? And when it was time to get haircuts, where do you get haircuts from? So they're informational things that we learned. But we also commiserated together. We talked about how sleep deprived we were and how much it would be fun to go out just as grownups and those kinds of things. So Relationships, you know, play such an important role, but particularly when things are challenging, they play that role. Some of the deepest relationships, like leaving an event and and feeling so connected with the people I was with, were the ones where I was going through a lot, like public speaking training. I had to fly to the other side of the country, I think six times, five days at a time, all day. It was the most intensive education I had had since, I would say, before college because... I didn't go to class a lot. <laughs> so, and so I, I used to seek people like that where I'm like, no, they had to have gone through a struggle or we need to bond in some like deep, like we got to be in it together. And I would find it kind of difficult to really connect with people who have just had these easy breezy lives. And, and now I, they only need to be a parent because that is the struggle. <laughs> like it is something like I have never gone through before. Yeah where you just have to be living for someone else. And so sometimes it's more of this period in a life cycle, this this stage of life that you're in that kind of brings all of the things that you need together. Where I said like, yeah, you don't need to be into yoga and into entrepreneurship and into podcasts. Like I don't care because we both have toddlers. So <laughs> I know you are probably on your hands and knees 12 different times this morning cleaning up ketchup that they flung or something. <laughs> But you also talk about how there's two crucial predictors of happiness, and it's the frequency and quality of our contact with other people. Is there something that we're shooting for, or is this subjective based on personality type? This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. You also talk about how there's two crucial predictors of happiness, and it's the frequency and quality of our contact with other people. Is there something that we're shooting for, or is this subjective based on personality type? So there probably are variations across people, which is why it's so hard to just prescribe kind of the number of relationships that you need. So one of the common questions I'll get when I give a talk about our research is, Um, Well, is it just okay to have one friend or five friends? What's the kind of magic number? And by focusing on the quality and the quantity of connections, we're, we're trying hard to move away from that counting 
And I want to say a little bit more about that. So it's really the quality that I want to hone in on. So what are the connections? What are you getting in the connections you have with others? Are you getting that opportunity to experience joy and laughter? Can you Do you have friends that you can go out with and have a good time or just relax with? Do you have friends that you can call when you need that ride to the airport or you need to figure out you know, how to get to the hospital in a real emergency? So friends and connections serve many purposes for us. And I think the best way to think about how many and how frequently I need to see people is thinking about what it is that you need. And we all need different things or we need different quantities of it. So are you a person that needs lots of reassurance? Do you need people around you that are gonna kind of buoy you when your confidence is down? Do you need answers to questions that might be more of a kind of informational support? Um, do you need help getting motivated? Are there people in your life that can do that? So kind of doing an inventory of the things that you need, the kinds of support that you need, and seeing if you're getting that support. Now, for some lucky people, that might be one person. Although in modern days, we often put that into our closest connections, our partners. It's a lot of responsibility for a partner to meet all your needs of support. So oftentimes having more than one is, is helpful. It's just a smart strategy. And you might get different kinds of support from, from another person different than your partner. So maybe your partner's not so good about kind of calling you out when you're doing something that's not so good. Uh, he or she tends to be reassuring as opposed to kind of critical when you need some critical feedback. So for most of us, we need different people to give us a variety of different kinds of support, but those are the key drivers. It's the quality of our connections. And also um, the research suggests that the more time we spend with others at the daily level over the course of a month or a year, the happier we are. It's our research and other people's research as well. There's probably a big kind of cutoff or cliff, like one, two, three, four, five, and after that, each additional close connection may not be as valuable, but we all need a core set of connections, I think, to help us navigate through life. I want to say one other thing, which is that this is a study across the lifespan, and that gives us a kind of incredible vantage point to see. So we've been talking a lot about when you were in your 20s and now that you're, you know, a parent, you're going to become a parent for the second time. That stuff matters. Where we are in the lifespan matters. So our needs change across the lifespan. What's important to us shifts. So in our 20s, it's important actually to have lots of connections because that teaches us things. It exposes us to new experiences. The job of 20-year-olds in some ways is to grow knowledge quickly, to learn about things very quickly. But when you're in your 50s and 60s, the acquisition of new things, not as critical. It's still important and lovely. I'm someone who's been teaching for 30, 40 years, and I love it because I learn things all the time. Um, but it's less important than it was in your 20s. Other things may become important. So as we age, um, I'm 60 now. And as I age, um, I begin to think about, you know, my body is changing. And at some point, I'm going to need help physically with certain tasks. So the kind of support we need may shift as we age, not just our bodies changing, but also what our priorities are and the kinds of daily activities that we do shift through the lifespan. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what I am coming back to with both of the things you said is how important it is for us to be in touch with ourselves and our own needs. And that was one of the biggest realizations in my own self-growth journey was, yes, you can look at it like, oh, I need connections or I maybe need more money or blah, blah, blah. And, but all of that is sort of reaching externally and expecting other people to be a band-aid on what we feel like is like missing in our lives versus actually knowing, no, I 
this is what I'm looking for in a friendship. This is what I'm looking for in an intimate relationship. This is the kind of relationship I want to have with my family and my kids and consciously creating it rather than just flinging yourself into a room and waiting for somebody to come make you feel a certain way that you don't even know you're trying to feel. And so that combined with checking in with yourself consistently, regularly throughout your lifespan because, hey, yeah, I did this work and I figured out what I needed at 27 and I'm 37 and I'm not feeling fulfilled. Why? Well, yeah, my needs have changed. So go back and do that work again, whether you're journaling, whether you're meditating, whether you're just having conversations with people that bring out questions, the knowledge, the self-knowledge that you're trying to understand so that you can cultivate that sounds like it would be a really important practice to create. I think it's a great practice. And and the other part of it, I think is also important, which is the idea that we're not equally good at some of the tasks of relationships. So that um, it's important to know yourself, to know what you need. It's also important to, to think about what you've been good at. So an example, again, as we're aging, or even as we're young, some of us are particularly not good at being vulnerable, putting ourselves out there, whether it's asking someone out when we're very young and, and being fearful about being rejected, or as we get older, our kind of need that we have. So, you know, my eyes are, are not as good as they were 20, 30 years ago. So in class, I'll have to say to students, I'll say, can you tell me what this says? I can't see it without my glasses. And, and that's something that some people are uncomfortable doing. Um, I kind of like it. It gives the students some expertise and, and skill that I don't have. So it's a way that we can exchange or change positions for a moment. But there, there are things in relationship that all of us aren't so good at. So it could be being vulnerable or asking for help. It could be, um, I think, as you're suggesting, it could be thinking about our role in relationships. So you might be in a string of relationships in which you say the other person is this. Um, but you also have to think about, well, what is it that I'm bringing to the relationship that attracted me to this person in the first place that maybe puts this person in a position where maybe I keep seeing the same kinds of disappointments, that that kind of self-awareness, self-evaluation, really important. So relationships are two-way streets. And our book is certainly about relationships, but it includes a lot of opportunity for self-reflection about both the things you need and maybe the things in relationship that you're good at and not so good at that can help you move forward. You talked earlier about um, one of the things of being aware of, which I did this step and it was so helpful, <laughs> is actually reflecting on my relationships and, and asking, well, what relationships do I leave feeling enlivened and which ones do I leave feeling depleted? And it was sort of a hard lesson for me because at the time, two of my closest friends were the ones leaving me depleted. And it's funny because looking back, those were also the ones that I was the most tied to habits that intrinsically I wanted to break. Like I know for me, this isn't a move for everyone, but for me, I was questioning my relationship with alcohol, for example, and they were the two friends that I'd have the most wine nights with. And they ended up, I didn't make the conscious decision with one of them. Hey, I'm going to cut this off because it's been depleting for years. But the other steps I was taking in my life kind of created this dissonance where it naturally fell away. And then the other one, I did make a more conscious decision. But there's this line between realizing it's depleting and deciding to cut it off versus actually facing the challenges in our relationships. How do we know when it's worth it? And when it is, what are some ways to approach those challenges? Yeah. So this is a part of the book. I was smiling as you were describing um, that section and, and your experience with your two friends. 
This is a part of the book that my co-author Bob Waldinger and I struggled when we wrote, yeah, because it is important to think about on a day-to-day level, what's kind of energizing you and what's pulling that energy away, as you said, what's depleting. But our suggestion is not that depleting relationships need to be severed, that they need to be ended, that you need to think about what's depleting about them. And in your case, there may have been good reason to sever them for your own health, and, and, and that may have made sense. But oftentimes, relationships that we value that are depleting there's an issue that we need to address, we need to deal with in some way. So again, it starts with a kind of, uh, some reflection, thinking about what it is in this relationship that makes me feel depleted, um, what it is that I'm experiencing that's filled with tension in this context, um, what is it that my relationship partner may be contributing, and why is it that I particularly feel this, and I feel it in other relationships as well. So maybe that's an issue that I need to work on myself. So um we're both, my co-author and I are both therapists, and we also take the lessons from the research from this great study, and people manage to overcome challenges. So the most depleting relationships can become quite energizing. In fact, in close relationships, really close relationships, so close friends or intimate relationships, the kinds of differences that seem to feel insurmountable at times are often an opportunity to connect even closer to that person that you're already connected to. So why is it that we have this difference? Why can't we agree on this? Why is this so important to me? So thinking about what it is um, that's important to you, why it's important, and where the, the way that you're doing something differently or thinking about something differently, where that comes from compared to your relationship partner, that's an opportunity for the two of you to be curious about each other and to say, gee, I, I, I realize I don't think about things that way, or I wasn't reared in a house where people screamed at each other all the time. I'm just not used to it in my house. No one talked to each other. So when we talk about the volume of our conversations, when we have differences, of course, it makes sense that you're going to feel more comfortable with the loudness than I am. So those kinds of opportunities for understanding differences, when you study couples closely, when you do couples therapy, that's what helps people grow. If you can sit with it in that moment, that discomfort with recognizing that difference and probably worrying about whether it's insurmountable and going to lead to the dissolution of that relationship. If you can sit with that long enough, you can begin to think about why it is that you have ended up in these different places. And that's the path ultimately to moving forward. It's not always easy. It can take work and certainly uh, sometimes it can take a professional helping folks along on that. So if it's an intimate long-term connection, also worth thinking about that. But people move beyond these kind of stuck points in depleting relationships and rejuvenate their relationship in important ways. So that's one way. And I want to go to the opposite extreme. That's a kind of complicated way. It's really very psychological and lots of work. And then there are just things that you can do differently. When we, we're in connections that have been around for a long time, we tend to do the same things, like go out and drink or whatever activity that you do with folks. And you can try something new. Yeah, you can change the dance of your relationship. And oftentimes just changing the context of how you're interacting or the conditions under which you're interacting introduces new opportunities and sometimes can be really invigorating, particularly in close connections. What's great about that is both are ways for self-growth because one's yep. self-reflection and one's like pushing yourself to try something new. And two of the ways that I see myself approaching relationships differently now compared to maybe those times in my 20s is the first one, 
actually, I think I've done this since high school because this one friend, it's one of my longest standing friendships. It's funny. Maybe it was easier to accept people's differences in high school. You, you're not as kind of set in your ways. You don't decide what you're looking for. But she's one of my favorite people still. But I remember in high school, she had this way of communicating where she would just sort of joke and be like, like I do something stupid and she'd laugh and be like, dumbass. I just wasn't used to that in my family. To her, it was like coming from love. Mm -hmm. And so I remember having a self-reflective moment even at like 15 thinking, okay, it's not personal. That's just how she interacts. It's actually a form of love for her. Mm -hmm. And so just sort of seeing that, that's something I can still carry today. That is their pattern. It has nothing to do with me. Even if it feels like it's somehow imposing on my energy, do I need to let this deplete me? Or do I? can I just shift my mindset around it, look at it a different way, and see it as just a way of life for somebody else, a way of being, and accept somebody for that? Because that can be a huge step in self-growth. And then the other way of actually deciding how can I be with this person and how can I show this person a different way to love or a different way of without saying like, oh, that's offensive to me. How can I just model how I would like to be treated? And so both of those things are kind of things to play with in relationships. And if you take it out of For me, that allows me to get out of the focus of like, "Ah, stop doing that. You keep doing that and it bothers me. And instead, it's almost like a game, like like I do with my child. Okay, speaking to him this way didn't help him not learn to not throw his food off of his high chair. How can I approach this differently? And so these little interactions can be fun instead of a source of stress. I think that's absolutely right. And and for me, the lesson is clearest. So in the book, we kind of go by relationship domain Uh, we go across relationship domains. So we talk about friendships, we talk about relationships at work, and there's a chapter on close intimate relationships as well. So this is a a big challenge in couples and certainly see it when I do couples therapy. Many times when we're in a challenging relationship and we feel like we're at wit's end, we want to change that other person. So this person is doing something wrong. This person is crazy. They were raised in a home in which they just didn't understand the importance of X or Y, uh, different than me. And we tend to kind of vilify those differences and, and be critical about that person. Oftentimes, it's very hard for the other person to change. And if they're going to change, they may not change that much. So the other route for it is what you say, which is adjusting your mindset and thinking about this in a new way, as opposed to thinking that you're the special target of whatever you find troubling here. You might recognize that this person has had a challenge their whole life with this, or in this person's family, these kinds of behaviors just mean something very different. So we can begin to accommodate a little bit, like it's a word that I think has gotten enough in in society that sometimes instead of always changing things, we can change ourselves so that these behaviors or these interactions are more tolerable to us and they don't give us that same sense of a depleting feeling that you're talking about. They may in fact be exciting. So, you know, my wife and I grew up in very different families and over the years we've, we've struggled with certain kinds of challenges that come out of that, but we've also learned to kind of lean into them and say, you know, it's so interesting, it makes sense in your family knowing your parents a little bit the way I did before they passed away, I kind of know why you do this. It makes total sense to me. 
but I didn't grow up with this. It's very different than what happened in my family. So we kind of have this curiosity about it and it's allowed us to grow. Uh, and we've each accommodated to each other in that way that our, our peculiarities and the special things that we, we brought into the relationship. And those, by the way, are often the things that attracted us to the people to begin with, whether it's an intimate relationship or a friend, are often those things that are a little different than us that bring something new to the table that are exciting, but can also become challenging for us over time. My husband and I do the same thing and our family lives were polar opposite. We were both loved and had great families, but my parents are like type A, everything in its place, nothing out, like everything is immaculate. <laughs> and his parents live in the middle of the woods, like go out in the back, smoke a joint together. They don't care where things go. <laughs> and so we often are, are just curious about like, oh, so that's how somebody who grew up in the woods would handle this <laughs> mm -hmm. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But another thing I wanted to touch on, even with those friendships and dealing with that, the challenges is coming back to the needs that we discussed and being really aware of, of, well, what do I need and not expecting one person to fill it all. And I think that's one of the things, if you become, bring more awareness to your relationships, whether it's the intimate ones or the friendships, and it's like, why am I feeling so depleted? Oh, I'm blaming this person for not filling this need. Can I just be in this moment without expecting them to fill this need and to highlight the needs and the, the things that I love about them, the needs that they do fill, and instead lean into that for this scenario instead of expecting to get everything from this person. I think that would decrease a lot of the frustration as well. Absolutely. So, you know, I think as, as you were talking, I was thinking back to challenges that I had with friendships when I was younger, that a friend wasn't doing everything that I needed that friend to do. And it was frustrating for me. And I, I think one of the ways that I've changed, this is a good feeling as I look back, you know, from 30, 40 years ago, um, I'm okay with friends that aren't going to give me everything that I need because I have a partner that gives me much of the much of what I need. I'm also aware of where I can get my needs fulfilled, even if it's not in a particular relationship. And there's some things I've gotten better at figuring out how to do on my own as well. So this idea that relationships don't need to be, they, they're not all or nothing, that, that people can fulfill different needs for us. We can have different kinds of friendships, really important idea. There's some research um, that's been done. It's Eli Finkel. Uh, he wrote a book called The All or Nothing Marriage. And he talks a lot about in the late 20th century, early 21st century, that marriages became this kind of place where people felt like they needed to get everything they needed fulfilled in that one place. So partners became consultants for business. They became the emotional regulators. They became, they had to do all the housework or share that housework with the person that there were just too many things that we were expecting of a partner. And I, I think there was really great wisdom in this idea that marriages were being challenged at that same period, right? That was the period when divorce rates were increasing as well. And I, I think there's a lesson there that certainly those of us that are lucky enough to find partners that we find supportive and loving and we, we have long-term relationships, it's terrific. But it's likely that people will need things outside of that relationship as well. And, and when I'm saying things, I'm not suggesting sexual things, although for some people, they may be open to that. I'm suggesting things that may be kind of simple and basic, like, you know, someone to partner with to play a particular sport or to go watch weird movies that your partner doesn't like. So there are lots of things that we may be able to get from our friends and relationships beyond beyond marriage. Well, we have so much to work with in this episode. Things to remember for listeners, challenge yourself to talk to strangers, 
figure out what you actually need and so that you can cultivate that yourself in a relationship instead of expecting everyone else to fill it for you and actually investing in those friendships. And so I love leaving listeners like one thing to really ground this information into their week so that it lasts. So if you were going to give them one action item, one piece of homework, what would it be? I think it's the way we end the book. And, and that's thinking right now in this moment, is there one person that you want to reach out to? And it might be the person next to you, or it might be someone far away and to let them know how important they are to you. And what can you do to strengthen that connection starting today? Well, thank you for everything that you brought to this episode. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about you and your book, where's the best place for them to connect and find it? So one place to go is our website for the book, thegoodlifebook.com, and there are hyphens between the good life. So the dash, good dash, et cetera, lifebook.com. And that has information about our book, um, information about myself and my co-author, and links to other sites for me, including my academic website. So that's a good way for people to start. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 281. We could take a lot of challenges from today's episode. The main things that stand out are that success is seen over the arc of someone's life. So begin to think in the long term. I know if you're anything like me, you can set a deadline and you wonder why you didn't make this amount in that time or didn't accomplish this thing in that time. But what's really helpful for me is looking back at my wins over the past one, five, and 10 years. So you might want to start just cataloging those because I know that when I'm not tracking my accomplishments, they just seem to kind of fall to the wayside. They blend in with everything else that I'm doing in life. And I forget to acknowledge that I've actually come pretty far. That's a big thing. So that's one choice for your challenge. The next big key finding from the study is that emotional intelligence is key. But it's interesting because somebody asked Dr. George Vallant, who is somebody who became obsessed with this study, they asked him how to use this emotional intelligence finding to really change your life and find more happiness. But his response was that, you know, the only thing that really matters in life are your relationships to other people. So if you do nothing else, I challenge you to focus on your relationships this week. I know I've been in a place where I almost didn't recognize the connections that I had. Maybe I was focused on the wrong ones or my mind was just used to perceiving the negative, but I found that loneliness is a perception. There's an upcoming episode in a few weeks that talks about this as well. So stay tuned for an episode on the power of awe. But that study that's coming up found that loneliness is a perception more so than it is an actual way of being. And this came from this finding that when they had people focus on awe, which again, you will learn in a while, when they had people focus on this new thing, whether it's gratitude or awe or whatever it is where you're consciously shifting your focus, people actually felt less lonely. Nothing changed about their relationships, but their perception of it. So keep that in mind if you're sitting at home thinking, gosh, relationships are the key to happiness and I don't know if I have any. Start by reaching out to some of your past friends. Start by reaching out to someone you haven't talked to in a while. Start by spending time in a new way with a friend that you do have. 
And remember, social media is more of a placeholder. It's kind of a fake bond. Yes, it's a great way to semi keep in contact with people, but you need more than that. If you want to decrease your loneliness, you need to actually have those in person or those phone calls or the FaceTimes, whatever it is that makes you feel really connected. And if you don't want to write all this down, maybe you're driving or you don't even know what I just said. <laughs> I have a downloadable worksheet for you at the show notes page. So make sure to go to mindlove.com slash 281. And if you want to go deeper with lessons like this, the Mind Love membership is for you. Every month, members get access to masterclasses hosted by me as well as other guest experts that I've partnered with. And these absolutely incredible masterclasses include three to five step-by-step -step video and audio courses along with worksheets and bonus checklists that just really help you integrate what you're learning in the podcast into your life. And each of these masterclasses is valued at five to 10 times the cost of the monthly membership. And actually it's closer to the cost of the yearly membership. So it's a really great deal. You also get access to meditations and other fun bonuses that help you keep all of this top of mind. So that's at mindlove.com membership. And it's also a great way to connect with other like-minded people. If you do need some sort of antidote for your loneliness, each of the masterclasses has a discussion section that you can start talking to other members and just get feedback on things that you want or add your input. Super fun. Mindlove.com slash membership. You can find all my sponsors at mindlove.com slash sponsors. If you love this episode, consider sharing it. Tap the little share button, share it directly with a friend or take a screenshot and share it on social media and tag Mind Love Melissa and Mind Love Podcast. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.